0: Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm delighted to be talking to Patricia Banks about Black Culture, Inc., how ethnic community support pays for corporate America. So welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Um, And I'm delighted that you're back, actually. Um, So a couple of years ago, we talked about uh, one of your books that was about Primarily museums, but also touched on uh, things like corporate funding, philanthropy. Um, and I guess Black Culture Inc. kind of moves that agenda on quite significantly, but also picks up on on some of the themes that you've written about before. And I'm really interested in, I guess, kind of why you wrote this book and, and where it fits in with these broader themes about things like corporate sponsorship, uh, culture, um, race in America, cultural taste, those kinds of themes.
1: Absolutely. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned my uh, book, Diversity and Philanthropy at African American Museums, that we talked about a couple years ago. And you're correct that Black Culture Inc. really grows out of that study and builds on it. So that's a study where uh, I travel across the United States and talk to over 100 supporters of African American museums to try to get a sense of why they were supporting these institutions. And of course, I would also visit the museums on those visits. Um, and so you can imagine, I, I would would. would go to the museums and I would look through them. And one of the things that was really striking was seeing uh, all of the evidence of corporate support. So you see the donor walls with uh, big corporate names and you see exhibition booklets with corporate logos. And so I really became curious about trying to understand why are corporations supporting black culture? And what I found was an answer that not only helps us understand that particular question, but it also delves into broader issues uh, such as why corporations are more broadly involved in what I call ethnic community support or philanthropy and sponsorships related to racial and ethnic minorities. And then these even bigger questions uh, that are related to race and capitalism and corporate social responsibility and you know, stakeholder capitalism. But essentially, you know, the the thesis of the book, what I argue is I argue that the reason, one of the reasons that corporations are supporting black culture is that for them, it's a form of diversity capital. And what I mean by diversity capital are cultural practices that allow firms to leverage opportunities, and address social problems that are related to race and ethnicity and other, uh, other types of social difference. And so what you essentially find uh, is that corporations get a return on their gifts. So the gifts are certainly enriching cultural institutions, but cultural institutions and initiatives, but corporations are also getting this return. And the return that they give is one that's related to their racial image. It's a practice through which they project an image, they construct this image that they value race and ethnicity they value inclusion and they value african-americans
0: i mean i i was really struck by a couple of things you said there the first thing was that experience of going into these places not not just museums actually but in in the book you you think about things like uh, music festivals and, and kind of broader uh, cultural events and, and the book really brings to life the experience of once you start spotting who is paying for some of these spaces and who is in control of some of these spaces, it does prompt the questions of what, what exactly do they get in return? But at the same time, I was really struck by the books. Uh, Maybe I'd call it kind of ambivalence in the analysis. You you know, it's not a book that says all forms of corporates patronage are are, are kind of evil or, you you know, organizations are like selling out or or whatever. It, it, It tries to kind of, I suppose show as you just mentioned there the various different ways that on the one hand organisations get things out of it on the other hand corporations you know can can profit and and like literally profit in some ways but but also audiences really really matter here and and over the course of of our chat we will we'll unpack that and I guess the place to start is is quite early on in the book where you talk about the Smithsonian and and the various kind of museums that make up Uh, the Smithsonian and how there are really clearly different um, interests that different corporate sponsors have, some of which seem quite logical. So, um, you know, aerospace engineering and um, space exploration exhibitions, but then some of which maybe reflect a bit more of that kind of cynicism um, actually, um, and maybe some of that kind of art washing. So so what's the story of, of the Smithsonian and your kind of experience Um, of thinking about corporate sponsorship in those institutions.
1: Yeah. So um, I think it's really, really interesting. So uh, uh, I, and, and thank you for mentioning that the Black Culture Inc. It it addresses museums like the Smithsonian, but I also um, went out and went to music festivals. um, And there's also some historical research as well. So for this chapter, uh, the the first chapter after the introduction, looks at the Smithsonian Institution. And I look at the Smithsonian Institution through the lens of corporate sponsorship. So the Smithsonian is, of course, um, the nation's leading cultural institution. Um, It's very important for uh, learning about the history of the United States, for housing the nation's, what's considered the best kind of cultural artifacts and, and art. Uh, but there are different museums. So there is the nat- uh, there is the Smithsonian Museum of African uh, American History and Culture, there's the National Museum of the American Indian, there's a History Museum, there's an Art Museum. And what I show is how Each of these museums plays a different role for image construction for corporations. Another way to put it is they all play a different role in the impression management of corporations. And so we see, and I can just offer some interesting examples. One of the, I think the most uh, striking examples for the National Museum of African American History and Culture and how they use the giving at this institution to Construct um, their racial identity, connection to Black people, and authenticity for products uh, is through um, an example of 21st Century Fox. So, 21st Century Fox uh, was a donor to the National Museum of African American History and Culture. They gave a two million dollar gift to the museum. And so, typically, what happens when uh, corporations give is the they not only do uh, they give the money, but then they write about it in various communication channels. So they'll write about it in blog posts. They'll write about it in press releases. Uh, Because again, part of what's going on here is there is a desire for stakeholders to know about this gift. So they write about it. So what's really fascinating with the 21st Century Fox gift to uh, the National Museum of African American History and Culture is that they announced the gift uh, on their blog and they write about the gift. You know, we recently gave $2 million. But then when you read further, what's really fascinating about it is they, after kind of talking about the gift, they then begin to discuss to uh movies that they uh have recently uh put out. And one film is Hidden Figures and then the other film is a film about uh, Nat Turner, which is Birth of a Nation. So Hidden Figures is this film that's about African-American women mathematicians who worked at NASA. And then Birth of a Nation is a fictionalized drama about Nat Turner, who was an enslaved man who led a rebellion in the 1800s. And so the, the donation announcement then becomes this vehicle through which they promote the films. So they mention the films. They have a link to the film websites in the, the post. And then with the uh, film about Nat Turner, Birth of a Nation, they go even further. There is a link to Nat Turner's Bible, which is in the collection of the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Uh, So basically what happens is, you know, what better way to promote these films that are based on Black history than to link them to the National Museum of African American History and Culture? And the announcement of the $2 million gift becomes a vehicle to do so. So I think that's one of the most interesting examples. A related example with the National Museum of the American Indian is uh, Orion Pictures. So uh, Orion Pictures was uh, promoting a film in the 1990s, uh, Dances with Wolves. Some of you may remember that film. And so just like 21st Century Fox used their a patronage at the National Museum of African-American History and Culture to promote the film, we saw the same dynamic with Orient Pictures and the National Museum of the American Indian. So again, the the giving, the the museums benefit, and then museums certainly are wonderful museums that need the resources. But what happens then is these companies uh, get to promote their products. Uh, along those lines, an uh, uh, interesting example in the book that I talk about with the National Museum of American History is with Ralph Lauren. So the fashion brand, Ralph Lauren. So Ralph Lauren, uh, as you know, is a company that's associated with American preppy chic. That's kind of the, the brand image. And so at one point in time, Uh, An artifact in the National Museum of American History, the Star Spangled Banner, uh, needed to be refurbished. So this is the flag that actually inspired uh, the national anthem in the United States. Uh, And so Ralph Lauren gave a $10 million donation. And again, you know, this piece of cultural history it needs to be preserved. So it was that was a very worthy cause. Uh, but Ralph Lauren benefited through using it to brand and continues to this day to do that. So what's really interesting is uh, the company has uh, products that have the an image of the American flag on it. And one is this product that's called the iconic American flag sweater. So it's just a plain sweater with this simple image of the American flag. And if you go to the the website and you purchase that product, what you'll see when you look at the description is not only information about uh, you know, the the materials, but what you also see is a mention of the fact that the company helped to support the preservation of this flag. So again, you have this this cultural institution that's benefiting, but then you also see, uh, you see these companies benefiting by using it to construct a particular type of image. And so each of the Smithsonian museums then plays a different role depending on the particular type of image that a company is trying to signal.
0: This sort of uh, corporate signaling, I I suppose in, in the examples you've just given, is i guess what we call a kind of an exchange um and um i i think your you know your analysis is is kind of critical through, throughout the book but um in the middle of the book you you, you take um i i think a, a much more maybe you know kind of capital c critical look at practices that are not really these kind of you know maybe cross promotions or, or exchanges, but a much more to do with salvaging the reputation of, in one case, a company that had, um, a kind of reputation for, for racism, I guess. But in another case, actually, you know, it was used to sell, um, t- tobacco products really. And, and I was fascinated by the two examples, one from Denny's, one from, um, a, a jazz festival of both, I suppose, the kind of, you know, very cynical use, um, of sponsorship to effectively kind of transform a reputation, but also more crucially, the way that um, audiences, uh, media, um, advertisers had kind of co-produced perhaps, or, you, you know, were certainly kind of heavily involved in in producing this reputational cleansing. So um, I, I wonder if you could maybe give a quick summary of, of those two examples and where this, um, I guess, more kind of sinister or, or at least you know the kind of uses we should be much more skeptical um of coming
1: thank you yeah so these are these are both fascinating examples and i think you're right um, so part of what we have to think about uh and we can talk about this a little bit more later but uh, are there any costs to this or is it just a win-win do, do the cultural institutions win and the companies win? That's the question you have to ask. And I think you're right. Um, there are these parts in the book where it becomes very clear that there can be some costs to this. There can be some costs. And so uh, the chapter on the Cool Jazz Festival is one where that is very clear. So just to give a little background on the Cool Jazz Festival. So the Cool Jazz Festival was one of the biggest black music, music festivals that took place in the United States in the 1970s and 1980s, and it was sponsored by a big tobacco company, Brown and Williamson. Brown and Williamson, uh, the American side of it, um, over the years, different parts have been sold off to different brands, uh, but it used to be a standalone entity that was uh, one of the biggest tobacco companies in the United States. And so, one of the to understand why Brown and Williamson uh, was involved in Cold Jazz Festival, one of the things we have to consider is we have to consider the racial and ethnic segmentation of the tobacco market. And one of the important kind of dimensions of that is the fact that, when we look at black smokers and we look at white smokers just to take two groups, uh, the products that they are more likely to smoke when it comes to cigarettes are different. So even to this day, when we look at menthol cigarettes and there's a type of f- uh, cigarette that's flavored with mint, we have about close to 90% of African-Americans preferring menthol cigarettes, as opposed to around 30% of white Americans. Uh, So there's this segmentation in the market. And while tobacco companies dispute this, there are some health practitioners who argue that that menthol cigarettes are particularly uh, uh, damaging to health. So that's important to consider as well. So then the question is, why is it the case that you have this segmentation in the market, and so many African American smokers preferring menthol cigarettes. Well, it gets back to the promotion of these products to them. And as I show in Black Culture Inc., uh, part of that promotion to them is through the Cool Jazz Festival. So the company sponsors this big festival. And they use the sponsorship as a medium to communicate to the African-American community that they are good for the community, that uh, they value the music in the community. And what happens is, of course, this messaging is not communicated just to the Black community directly it is also communicated through to the black community through an intermediary, which is the African-American media. And so what happens is Brown and Williamson has this messaging related to the festival and they cultivate the black press. And so what happens is Within the pages of Black newspapers, we not only see paid advertisements that are communicating this message that, you know, the Brown Williamson is good for the Black community, look at what they're doing, they're uh, sponsoring this big festival, but we also see the same messaging in the editorial pages of the newspaper, Uh, And so the black media then becomes part of this story where we're seeing this message that this tobacco company is good for the community being projected to African-Americans. And I think what's really important to point out is that by the 1970s and 1980s, there was very clear evidence that cigarettes were harmful to health very clear evidence. And, uh, in fact, by that time, it was the case that cigarettes did need to be labeled with a warning. So the product of cigarettes and the Brown and Williamson brand really had a spoiled identity, right? There's the, the product is spoiled. Um, the brand has the spoiled identity, Uh, the on the very products, they're required to have this warning that they're not good. But what happens then is that the festival then becomes this vehicle to cultivate this message that the, the company cares about Black people um, and the company is good. And so in that sense, that's that really presents uh, another side to uh, what we're seeing with Black community support being used as a form of diversity capital. What we're having is we're having the ethnic community support certainly uh, provide support. In this case, it was that was helpful to Black musicians, because I should note the Cool Jazz Festival, it was a festival for jazz musicians, but over time kind of evolved to also have other forms of Black music like rhythm and blues. Uh, and so it was certainly a vehicle through which those artists were able to uh, you know, get paid, which is of course very important. Uh, but there was a side where the festival is also being used to promote a, what we call vice product for those who um, look at consumption uh, from a sociological view, uh, vice products. It was used to promote a vice product, a product that was harmful to health. So uh, that's a real cost.
0: Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure,
1: or prevent any disease. And um, I I can also talk about Denny's a little bit too.
0: Well, I I was going to say actually that you've touched on a couple of things with the Cool Jazz Festival and, and cigarette and tobacco advertising that come to the fore slightly later on in the book with, I mean, it's, it's two case studies really, but, but you talk quite a lot about McDonald's in the book. And I was fascinated by the idea that if the Cool Jazz Festival was about essentially kind of selling cigarette products, then there's a, a point where McDonald's is um, cultural sponsorships aren't just about selling McDonald's, but actually end up kind of making McDonald's a sort of uh, religious, Christian, almost kind of sacred brand. So I'm fascinated to hear a bit more, I guess, of how a corporation goes beyond just, you know, changing its kind of reputation with a a particular segment of society, in this case, African-Americans, goes beyond selling products and ends up, um, yeah, being a kind of sacred object. Yeah.
1: Yeah, So the McDonald's case is absolutely fascinating. And I talk about McDonald's uh, sponsorship of Black culture in a couple of the chapters. So one is a chapter on the Essence Festival. And then I also talk about uh, their sponsorship of the Inspiration Celebration Gospel Tour. So this is a sponsorship that McDonald's has had for the past several years. Um, and it's this case of what you could call gospel marketing, that they're not the only company to do this. Um, and to understand this part of what we have to think about uh is religiosity and race. And so uh if you compare, for example, African Americans to white Americans, African Americans do have higher levels of religiosity. Uh, and so what's happened is that marketers then uh have used Christianity, have used the church as this vehicle to try to reach Black consumers. And one way that they do that is through sponsoring uh, music events that focus on gospel music. So McDonald's fits in with that tradition. Uh, But again, it's just really fascinating because just as, you know, by the 1970s and by the 1980s, when Brown and Williamson is trying to market their menthol cigarettes to uh, black consumers, at this point in time, there's clearly this spoiling of the product. uh, And part of that comes from public health practitioners. And of course, the same thing at this point in time it exists with McDonald's. So there's a there's a whole narrative of the brand as being bad for health. right? So it's it's fast food, it's not good for you. and uh, African Americans actually have uh, higher levels of consumption of fast food than other groups. And so part of that narrative too is that it's particularly bad for African Americans. So what's really fascinating about the gospel sponsorship, uh, Inspiration Celebration Gospel Tour is that the brand is able to counter this spoiled, this image as a as a spoiled brand as, as selling these products that are p- bad for health. And they're able to project this image as being sacred. Um, and at the same time, of course, appeal to the Black community. Uh, and again, this takes place through several mechanisms. Uh, the Inspiration Celebration uh, Gospel Tour, it goes, it travels to different cities. Typically, those cities have um, fairly high populations of African Americans. And oftentimes, the concerts will take place in church. So it's this, in you know, and so I attended, I attended... Uh, I attended uh, a couple different stops on the festival, and I write about it uh, in the book. But so it's really fascinating. So you you have this church, right? So it's this this house of worship that represents Christianity, uh, and then within the church, we have the McDonald iconography. So we have the golden arches placed to different parts of the church. Uh, we have the, you know, word the 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 name of the company throughout the church, uh, and so that process, along with others, is one of the ways that the company is able to project this image that it is uh, connected and values the African American community, and also that it is sacred.
0: It's re- it's really crucial here, and and you talk about actually how it gets incorporated in into you know parts of, of the services and and the sense actually that you know again this isn't just a sort of corporate agenda that's um pushed onto a, a passive audience but actually you know audiences consumers um are, you know kind of heavily um involved with with these brands and and are really um, active participants in the construction of these particular brand identities and, and that's the kind of uh, sort of conclusion and, and, and where the book's uh, final example comes in. Um, and, and I think you use the term kind of prosumption promotion practices um which struck me that that kind of runs actually all all the way through the book you you could read presumption practices into how people consume things um at museums as much as you can with with music festivals um and obviously in in the context of kind of music festivals there's this question about kind of selling out and becoming too commercial so I, i suppose the kind of final example um is is the story of uh, afropunk um and the way that It's now got a series of quite cool, quite um, like I sound so old saying this, but kind of like cool and hip young brands associated with it. But at the same time, um, those brands have lots of questions about, you know, how they control people's data or about, um, you know, their association with, you know, maybe kind of poor practices in the creative industries, you know, things like this. So so what's the sort of Afropunk story and, and how are consumers kind of? Uh, bound up with uh, doing prosumption of particular brands identities.
1: Yeah. So again, Afropunk is such a fascinating case. And so when we talk about presumption, what we mean uh, uh, is, is, is these actors who are not only producing goods, but they're also consuming goods. Um, and so kind of the classic case for that is people on social media. So if you're on Instagram, you're, uh, On one hand, you're consuming the posts of others, but then you're also you're creating product. You are creating, in this case, posts. Uh, And so what I do in the chapter on Afropunk is I uh, look at prosumption through the lens of uh, festival goers at the Afro Punk event. So, uh, Afro Punk is this uh, very big music festival, and it started uh, as a way for Black punk rock fans and musicians to come together because they would often find themselves to be the only, <laughs> the only Black person um, in the venue when they were at traditional uh, punk events. So this event starts as a way to bring everyone together. And so uh, the first one takes place in Brooklyn uh, and they still have had it in Brooklyn since then, but it is expanded. So there is a, there is a concert series in South, in Africa, Europe. Um, There's also one in Atlanta, but the original one was in Brooklyn. And so what happens is at the festival, Uh, Bands, black punk bands will perform as well as other bands that have people of African descent uh, in them. So that's an important part of it. But another equally important part of this festival are the festival goers themselves uh, and the fashion, um, the presentation of self of these festival goers. And so they take great care. uh, Many of the festival goers take great care in in uh, in In styling their hair and styling uh, their outfits um, and and so there 's very distinct uh, afropunk look um, kind of emerges from from this context, so there are afrocentric elements, for example with hairstyles, maybe braids or locks uh, um, that gets blended with traditional punk. So you might have in your braided style, maybe you'll have some neon pink uh, and and then maybe you'll have some combat boots. So this, this new style is kind of developed. Uh, and so what happens then is that part of what companies are purchasing from their sponsorship is not only the opportunity to market to these attendees, right? And this is, um, um, there is a predominantly Black audience there. They're not only using this as an opportunity to market to them, but to use the festival goers as a mechanism to reach a bigger audience through social media posts. So one of the things that happens at Afropunk and also other festivals like uh, Essence is that brands on the festival grounds will have these kind of tents. They'll have these, these little tents or booths. And in the booths, what they will have is they will give away free products. So oftentimes they create product that has a black element to it. Um, So they'll create particular products, merchandise, kind of free merch to hand out to festival goers. Um, But they'll also have photo booths. They'll have these photo booths, these elaborately designed photo booths. And so they will encourage festival goers to take photos in those photo booths. Uh, and then to post them on their social media channels with these corporate hashtags. Uh, And what's really interesting uh, is that... uh, in some cases the they will <laughs> in one case there was one company at Afropunk so you would go to take your photo and then when you would step out of the photo booth they would ask have you posted to your social media using this hashtag and then if you said yes and they would hand you some free product so that was that was interesting so so again there's another exchange going on there but essentially then what they get is when these Uh, festival goers are posting, the brand then gets associated with blackness, with edginess, with hipness. And so these festival goers are getting a photo in an interesting kind of visually stimulating uh, backdrop uh, and then what companies get for that is companies get to brand themselves, to associate themselves with blackness and edginess. And I think what's interesting is we certainly see companies doing that with rap and hip hop. So that's, you know, you look at uh, companies like Sprite, for example. We look at companies like Nike and they have kind of drawn on the symbols of uh, Blacks and hip hops to kind of give them this edgy urban image. And so what's interesting when we think about uh, Afropunk is we have uh, companies using the style uh, of the festival goers there to communicate a uh, Black and edgy uh, kind of image, but of course it's a different, uh, different one than hip hop communicates.
0: I mean there's loads more we, we we can talk about actually and um you know you, you mentioned that there's loads more examples in the book actually there's there's analysis of of a whole range of different corporate actors as as well as um different um cultural festivals and and historical analysis and obviously i I urge people to to read the book partially because um this comes right the way kind of through at the very end of the book I think the analysis is is really not just to do with um the black community in america contemporary african american culture but actually um has a series of, of insights that can be applied pretty kind of smoothly and straightforwardly far beyond that particular cultural context i think of a range of different examples in in the european and in, in the australian settings where some of the um kind of lessons from the book are, are really clear and 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 apply really Really well, and it strikes me that the book has kind of set a research agenda almost, and 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 the place to kind of wrap up our discussion is whether future work that you're going to be doing is going to be in kind of, you know, within that sort of research agenda. Are are you thinking about um, applying these lessons and and these insights in future books beyond um, the case studies that you've got, or are you thinking about doing something kind of completely different, um, having sort of set the terms of, of a possible new research direction with Black Culture Inc. You
1: know, it's, I, I just, it's, all of my research has led me to the next project. So, of course, that is the case here. And I think, as I was saying in the beginning, you know, on one hand, it's a story about uh, corporations and their support of Black culture, but there is a much bigger story here. And I really see this as providing important insight about uh, a big question that, you uh, I think people in the corporate world, people in nonprofits and the broader public is interested in, which is what are the benefits and what are the limits of corporations being involved in social initiatives cultural and otherwise, we're really seeing uh, just growing emphasis on you know, corporate social responsibility, a kind of uh, term now that's being used is stakeholder capitalism. Uh, so this idea that corporations uh, are not only responsible for increasing shareholder wealth, but also uh, being concerned with the well-being of other stakeholders such as local communities consumers suppliers and workers and we're seeing this this concept just being increasingly embraced and ceos saying uh profit and purpose are compatible we can do both and i think that what black culture inc allows us to do is to look at well what happens when corporations are involved in social initiatives? Is it the case that it is simply a win-win? Because this is how it's often being presented. And I think what my book shows, I think what Black Culture Inc. shows is that sometimes it can be a win-win but at other times there are costs. And so that is a topic that I'm continuing to explore in my research. Uh, The last chapter in the book begins with the Black Lives Matters uprisings in 2020 and corporate donations to the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. So this is a moment where we see companies giving to the museum and using it as a way to signal we are concerned about racial inequality. And so uh, in my work moving forward, uh, I'm looking at corporate support of uh, uh, corporate support uh, more generally. And I'm looking at this question of, are profit and purpose compatible if so under what conditions and if not uh what are the conditions so yes i'm continuing to explore these issues in my uh, ongoing research On a, a future book we will see we will see it's <laughs> uh, there's been a pattern with me so i, I don't know <laughs> if it it's the pattern that will be another book